Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7. In a moment we'll be reading verses 14 through 25, Exodus chapter 7. Other places in God's Word... Bible describes the land of Egypt where the Israelites were enslaved as an iron furnace. And it rejoices in the fact that those Israelites were brought out of the iron furnace. You ever feel like your life is an iron furnace? pressure, hot, you feel the heat, you want relief, escape. How gracious of God that he brought his people out of the iron furnace. How gracious and great is it that God brings all of his people out of the iron furnace. And not only does he bring them out of the iron furnace, he leads them to the very mountain of God where then they worship him. It's the trajectory that we are on in the book of Exodus and it's about to get much hotter in the iron furnace. So would you stand with me as we read from God's Word, Exodus 7, beginning in verse 14 this morning. Out of respect and reverence for God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out of the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord, 
Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not he did not even excuse me, he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Your word, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We come to this next section in Scripture, Exodus 7, with some fear and trepidation. It might be a section of Scripture that you are more familiar with. If you've grown up as a child in Sunday school, you probably were taught about the ten plagues. Perhaps there was a flannel graph depicting these events or pictures that you colored. But there might be one aspect of these events that we could easily lose sight of if we are not careful. We must remember that Egypt would experience, and what we are reading is nothing less than God's judgment. Our God is a God of judgment, a God of wrath. Those are statements we might not like to linger on for very long. We are quick to say after we say things like that, but don't worry, he's a God of love. He's a God of grace and mercy. All this is true, but let us not pit God against himself. As if to say some attributes of God are better or more important than others. And I believe the church at large in the West, the church in our culture, has done a great disservice in not talking about God's judgment. 
When we fail to talk about God's judgment, we fail to see him as holy. God's judgment is a holy judgment. This is what one writer says about God's judgment. Sometimes we have seen God who works through people as he brings about his judgment. We should be in no doubt, though, that even when God so acts, the judgment is the judgment of our personal God. Judgment is about being encountered by this God in his holiness. It is an encounter as personal as meeting one's neighbor next door. It's personal because it is the reaction of God's holiness to sin. Not to sin in the abstract, but to particular sin, particular dispositions, and ways of looking at life that people and nations have. So this is God's judgment. Personal judgment. Judgment that comes upon people because of their sin. How many problems in the church are here because we have failed to talk about God's judgment and wrath. Yet it's not not comfortable or appealing to talk about God's judgment. We are afraid of being one of those fire and brimstone preachers. So instead of talking about God's judgment, we often ignore it or say as little as we can about it. We might prefer not to think about it for any sustained amount of time. We're going to work through these ten plagues for a sustained amount of time, so we're going to have to think about God's judgment for a time. Do we ever think that God's wrath, maybe one of the reasons why we don't talk about it is because we think, if I talk about God's wrath, that's going to create more problems. It's going to create more hurdles for people to hear. They don't want to hear about God's wrath. I don't want to talk about God's wrath because it just might make more problems for me in my life. Do we understand that in fact God and His judgment and His wrath doesn't create problems for us. In fact, God's judgment and wrath solves problems. It solves our moral dilemmas. It doesn't create moral dilemmas. The biblical writers had no difficulty in declaring that God will act in judgment. The difficulty lies in if God did not act For then, evil would have triumphed. So, in fact, we want to hear about God's judgment. We want to hear about God's wrath because it's there that he actually deals with the greatest problem of evil in our world. If he doesn't act, then it's a problem. Then life is meaningless. There's no point. Many people might say they don't want a God of wrath or judgment. They would prefer a God of their own imagination. So many people would like a God who is a concierge. 
just gives them what they want. I need a little something here. I need a little something there. Other picture God is maybe a, a grandfather who's there. When they fall down, scrape their knee, he'll give them a piece of candy, pat them on the head. Some people treat God like a therapist. A God who can entangle all of your complexities or dysfunctions that exist in your life. Help you live so that you can get over your debilitating problems. Such depictions of God do not give the whole picture. They do not give an accurate picture. They often do not give a solidly biblical picture of who God really is. And so when we come to these ten plagues, we cannot get around the fact that God is a God of judgment. We see it time and time again upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And when we read it, we see how it impacts people. These are real people. These are their lives. This is what they are having to go through. There are real and devastating consequences to God's judgment. So how are we supposed to think about this judgment? Well, first, we must know that God's judgment is never capricious. That is, it is never careless or impulsive or unreasonable or unstable. There is a reason for it, a divine purpose. God is judging sin and sinners. It is such sin that is an attack, an affront on his holiness. So we are sinning against a holy and infinite God, and so then we rightly deserve infinite punishment. We must also say that God's judgment is always right and true and just. God's judgment never errs. He never gets it wrong. God's judgment is not out of control. It's completely righteous and holy in all of its ways because it comes from a righteous and holy God. This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about reasons why we might not evangelize, reasons why we might not proclaim the gospel to other people around us. Could this be another reason right here? Why don't we evangelize? Because we don't take the judgment and wrath of God seriously. Because we don't take hell seriously. How does the Bible describe hell? How does Jesus describe hell? A place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a horrific, horrific place. The worm does not die. The fire is never quenched. Maybe you've experienced a painful burning sensation in your body for some physical reason here on earth. Imagine that consuming your body for eternity. 
what is it when you experience that burning in your own body now? I want relief. I want it to end. I want it to stop. There's a place and time when people will experience a burning like that, I can only imagine, but a burning like that that will never stop, where there will be no relief, where they might wish and wish and wish that it would go away, but it will never go away. How are we to approach these plagues, this judgment of God that is on display before our eyes? We come with reverence and awe as those who are among this same holy God. We come with sober-mindedness in seeing that God will judge sin. He will deal with sin. He will not sweep it under the rug. He will not forget about it. He will not wink his eye and pretend like it never happened. He will not downplay it or minimize it. God takes sin seriously. God takes your sin seriously. We should also approach this section of Scripture as a warning with ears to hear, eyes to see, how God worked in the Exodus and how he continues to work and will continue to work into the future. At the forefront of these ten plagues is the word of the Lord. All that happens in these plagues is happening according to the word of the Lord. The first words that we read at the beginning of each plague is something like this. Then the Lord said. Who is it that's in control of these plagues? Who is it that is overseeing and orchestrating and causing these plagues to happen? It's no one but the Lord God himself. We cannot and must not deny that at the center of it all is the Lord and his word. And how true are the words of Hebrews 4.12 played out in these ten plagues. For the word of the Lord, the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. With ten total plagues and the Lord's word initiating each, we are reminded both to look back and to look forward. So we look back to the ten words of the Lord at creation, where ten times it says there in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, and God said. And we look forward to another ten words that we will see even in this book, the ten words that come out of the fire. We know those ten words to be the Ten Commandments. 
God completes his creation with ten words. God completes his call for holiness upon the lives of his people with ten words. And so now, here in the middle, God will complete his judgment upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, and those who are his enemies with ten words. As we move through these plagues, we will see three cycles. So each plague comes in the, in the midst of a cycle. So plague one, two, three, that's one cycle. Plague four, five, six, that's another cycle. Seven, eight, nine is another cycle. And then culminating in the tenth, the death of the firstborn. We will explore these cycles and see how they repeat But I've also, beginning last week, been calling upon another verse to help us understand these verses. It's this verse from Ezekiel 29. So if you have your Bible there, keep your finger in Exodus 7, and let's just look at Ezekiel 29 for one moment. Ezekiel 29, verse 3, to help us understand these verses that we're reading in Exodus Ezekiel 29. Verse 3. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws. And make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. Last week we spoke about how the Lord designates Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, as a dragon. But the scene from Ezekiel continues to extend into this account of the first plague What is the dragon doing in Ezekiel? He is lying in the midst of his streams. He is a water dragon lounging about in his great river. And he makes this audacious proclamation. My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. The great and mighty Nile River. The Nile River was a source or the source of life for all of the land of Egypt. Let's be honest, the Nile is how Egypt survived. It was how they were able to flourish and grow into the great superpower of a nation that they were. The Nile is a representation of fertility and they depended upon it in order to live. The Nile was everything Its essentialness to the life of the Egyptians cannot be overstated. And how does Ezekiel say that Pharaoh acts? This is my Nile. The great and mighty mighty Nile is mine. I'm over it. I control it. It represents my greatness, my power, my control. And him saying that this is his Nile, he's saying, Egyptians, if you are going to depend upon the Nile for everything, you're really going to have to depend upon me because I control the Nile. It's mine. The 
such a scene and proclamation helps introduce us to the first plague. We begin, though, with this proclamation that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's a matter-of-fact statement. We are not told here that anyone made Pharaoh's heart hard was simply a statement in the present tense. Pharaoh's heart is hard. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the inner man, who one is on the inside, particularly focusing on the mind and the will. We can see Pharaoh's mind not wanting to change and that his will does not want to move as much as an inch. He won't budge. Unfortunately, when we read that Pharaoh's heart is hard and we read it over and over and over again, oftentimes we can think that it is always saying exactly the same thing. But there's three different words that Moses uses to relay this fact that Pharaoh's heart is hard. And here, the word that he uses is heavy. Pharaoh's heart was heavy. It can mean that his heart was not working properly. In fact, you remember what Moses told Yahweh when he said, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He's saying, my mouth is heavy. My tongue is heavy. They don't work properly, God. They can't be used. And so when this proclamation is the Pharaoh's heart is hardened or heavy, it's not working properly the way that it's supposed to work. But there is another aspect of this word heavy that might make us ask, what is it that made Pharaoh's heart heavy? What was it that made his heart not work properly? It was the fact that Pharaoh's heart was filled with iniquity and sin and injustice. This is what weighed his heart down. This is what had control over his mind and enslaved his will so that he would not bend. A a heart that is heavy with sin and a heart that refuses to obey God is truly a hard heart. And so this hard and heavy heart brought God's judgment. And maybe right here it would make us ask ourselves a question this morning. Is your heart heavy? Has it been made hard and calloused because it is filled with sin? It need not stay that way. And we will hear as we move through this account and come to the end how you can find your way out. There is a way out. You do not have to stay in your sin. But now Moses is told to go to Pharaoh in the morning. So there is an action. Pharaoh is doing something. It says here that he will be coming up out of the water. So go to Pharaoh early in the morning. He'll be coming up out of the water. And I think here he's coming up out of the Nile River. 
And Moses is there. He's to be standing on the bank of the Nile to meet Pharaoh as he comes out of the water. How reminiscent, maybe, of Miriam, who 80 years before had stood on the banks of the Nile waiting to see what would happen to her little brother Moses as he floated in his ark on the very same river. Pharaoh, the great dragon, has just been bathing in the Nile. Some even think that this ritual bathing that he would do in the Nile was to worship his gods, to worship even the God who was over the Nile. And so Pharaoh, basking in his own greatness and in his own self-prescribed glory, comes up out of the water and is there met by Moses. And there is Moses and Aaron, and what's in their hand? The staff of God. And what does that staff remind Pharaoh of? This staff is the staff that was turned into a dragon that gobbled up all of your dragons. And Pharaoh, you are not going to win. You are not going to triumph. He has that as a reminder right there before him. And now God was about to strike the Nile and turn it into blood. Think of it. The Nile, which was used as an instrument of death against the male Hebrew babies, would now be turned upon them. It would become a source of trouble for Egypt. An attack on the Nile is nothing less than an attack on Egypt, attack on the fertility in Egypt, attack on all life in Egypt. Without the Nile, there was no Egypt. And so what is God doing? He is casting down the Egyptians and, and Pharaoh from their principal dependence upon the Nile. You think, he says, that the Nile is what you need? You think the Nile is dependable? There is only one source of life, there is only one who gives life, and there is only one who maintains life. And so the Lord God strikes at the very heart of what they trust in for their own life. This was their source of life, and God says, I'm going to strike at the heart of what you depend upon. And I'm going to show you just how weak it is. And this is Yahweh himself, the Lord himself, who is doing this. So what happens when the Lord turns their source of life into a symbol of death by turning it into blood? What is happening? Four things this morning you can see here in your bulletin. Four, four things that are happening as the source of life is turned into a symbol of, blood, of death. Number one, you can follow along there if that's helpful. When God turned the source of life into a symbol of death, he was revealing himself. When God turned the source of life into a symbol of death, he was revealing himself. Verse 17 is very programmatic here. It's explaining why the sign is performed. It's through this sign, this supernatural action by the Lord, that the Lord was going to make himself known to Pharaoh. And let's just say up front that this was a supernatural, miraculous event. Some have tried to explain this away by saying, well, there was just some silt that got into the Nile, and that that silt made the water uh, look red, and it wasn't really blood. 
It was just some natural thing, a natural occurrence that happened. I don't think that's true. I think this is a supernatural act. When it says that God turned the water to blood, he turned the water to blood. And he did this to proclaim himself, who he is, his own glory. Proclaim his own name. Pharaoh, in, back in 5, 2, had explicitly said, I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh. Who am I that I should listen to him? I don't know him. But it's through this sign that he would no longer have that excuse that he is ignorant of the Lord. He is going to know who Yahweh is. God is making the truth about himself known. And to think that God makes himself known through judgment. We see the almighty God flex his great power in miraculously turning the Nile into blood. And notice the personal nature of God performing this work. He is about to use Moses and Aaron, but when he communicates to Pharaoh, Yahweh says, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. This is God's powerful hand striking the Nile, and with such an action, there could be no doubt that it is God doing it and God alone. God wants to make himself known. And it was his desire, and this is his chosen means by which he reveals himself. He is the giver of life, not the Nile. He is the one who is in control of life and death. To know the Lord means to recognize and then to submit to his authority. So why does the Lord want to make himself known? Because he wants to make his lordship known. He wants to make his authority known. And how, how difficult it is for Pharaoh's heavy and hard heart to accept, much less to confess. God has now revealed himself through this sign. And this is what God does when he reveals himself. He's showing us that he is the Lord and that he has authority over everything. And he's revealed himself most fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. And now we see him as Lord. And such a recognition of his lordship and his authority means that submission is necessary for our salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you know Jesus as Lord? Have you submitted yourself to him? Have you believed and confessed and so been saved? There is no other way. To be Christ's, to know him, means to know that Jesus is Lord. And that you've submitted and put yourself underneath his authority. What about very practically for us as Christians this morning? Is there anything in your life right now that you know, you know what God's word says, 
but you're wrestling with its authority, what it says, what you must do. Is it time to come again and say, Jesus, I know that you are king. I know what your word says. And so I willingly submit myself to you. Knowing Christ is not just a one-time submission, it's a continual submission, day by day by day. Are you continually submitting yourself to him? As he has revealed God to you. Number two, when God turned the source of life into a symbol of death, he was reigning supreme. As we come to the details of this supernatural judgment, I'm sorry, let me say that again. He was reigning supreme. Reigning as in a king, not reigning like it's raining outside, reigning like. As we come to the details of this supernatural judgment, we see that the Nile is turned to blood and it will cause all the fish to die. The Nile was not only their source of water, it was also the source of food and source of commerce. The food supply in Egypt would be in jeopardy. The economic stability in Egypt would be put into question. The water being turned to blood and the fish dying. And then no wonder that the whole Nile would stink. The whole land of Egypt would become a stench. It was foul, rotten, spoiled. Perhaps it brings with it the idea of being good for nothing. The water turned to blood means the Egyptians won't be able to draw water from it to drink anymore. And the extent of this act is huge. Aaron is to stretch out his hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their canals, over their ponds, all their pools of water, so what? That, that they all become blood. You see how great the extent of this is? So that they may become blood, and there shall be blood where? Throughout all the land of Egypt. All the land of Egypt. No one was exempt there, although I think the Israelites were exempt. Why do I think that? I think we see it's the Egyptians who are having to dig along the Nile at the end, isn't it? They're the ones who are having to look for the water. seems like all of this is coming upon them. They're the ones that are going to grow weary of drinking water from the Nile, not the Israelites. And notice these other pronouns that are used here. Take your staff and stretch it out over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools, so that they may become Blood. I think it's pointing to the fact that this is intensified, this is intense judgment coming upon Egypt for their sin and for what they have done. And as this is happening, the Lord is directly challenging the rule of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you think you reign supreme over all the water of Egypt? You think that they are yours? You think that you made them? You think that they are for you, your use? 
But the Lord is saying that he is the sovereign Lord who reigns over everything. Pharaoh, the Nile is not yours, it's the Lord's. No water in the land of Egypt appears to be free from this sign. It's extensive. And what it's showing is that this is a fight for sovereignty. This is a fight for supremacy. Who would win? And we're given a glimpse here. This is going to be a battle. and The land of Egypt is going to be the one that's filled with blood. Like a bloody battlefield left over. So this land will be filled with blood. The Lord will reign supreme. And there is no victory in resisting His reign. Number three. When God turned the source of life into a symbol for death, his power could not be reversed. His power could not be reversed. Just like before last week, we talked about the magicians were able to turn their staffs into dragons. So now, Pharaoh calls his sorcerers, his magicians, to have them duplicate this action. And there comes a question. Where did the magicians get pure and untainted water. So I'm going to tell you. I don't know. Yet it didn't seem to trip up Moses either, did it? They were able to get water from somewhere, clean water, and they were able to turn it to blood. How were they able to accomplish such a feat? Well, again, how are they doing this? They're doing it by their secret arts. You see it say that there. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, or it could be their occult-like practices. I think here again, like we said last week, this is something demonic. There's some power here that these demons have. They're able to change this water into blood, and so I think same way these magicians are able to change it through these demonic powers, through their secret arts through the work of the occult that they're practicing. But notice what's interesting. All the magicians are able to do is to intensify God's judgment. <laughs> like God's judging them by turning their water into blood. And so the magicians duplicate that and they take some clean water that they have and they turn it to blood, more blood. All they can do is make more blood. That's it. I wonder, if you really want to prove that you are more powerful than Yahweh, how about you reverse it? How about you take all of the water that's been turned to blood and you make it water? Now we're talking, right? If you are really powerful and you really want to challenge Yahweh, you'll be able to undo what he has done. But at last, they cannot do that. They cannot reverse or undo what God has done. They cannot undo God's judgment upon them. While they duplicate it and deceive themselves and deceive maybe Egyptians... 
They cannot reverse God's judgment. In fact, we are not able to undo God's judgment either. We're not able to reverse it. In fact, are we only able to make it worse? Intensify it? There's only one who took God's judgment upon himself, satisfied God's wrath, extinguished God's wrath, so that we could escape God's judgment, and that's Jesus Christ. He took God's judgment and God's wrath upon himself for our sin, that we, we deserved his judgment, but he took our sin upon himself so that we could be free from God's judgment. And so I pray this morning that you are free from that eternal judgment. You do not know it because you know Christ because you are trusting in his work. He took all of God's judgment that you deserved upon himself. That's power. Number four, when God turned the source of life into a symbol of death, there was no repentance. This is the response. When God turned the source of life into a symbol for death, there was no repentance. Pharaoh remained hard, God's judgment remained on Pharaoh and all of his people. He could not bring any relief to them. All they could do was dig along the Nile to see if they could find water. There's not even any explicit confirmation that they were successful. Yet after all of this judgment, there's no repentance. Pharaoh remains in his sin. He turns, he goes back into their house, into his house, One commentator notes perhaps even the callousness of Pharaoh's heart as if to say, well, I'm going to go back to my palace. I have all the wine that I want to drink. Egyptians, fend for yourselves. Dig along the Nile. Look for your water. Could be. But they did not turn to God. They did not turn from their sin Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Seven days for repentance. Seven days to show that God's judgment would be complete. Seven is often this divine number of completion. So seven full days passed showing that, again, God's judgment would be complete upon the people And yet there was still that opportunity for them to repent. There was still the opportunity for Pharaoh's heart to be softened. Yet they would not turn. As we look at this judgment that's coming from God upon Pharaoh, upon the Egyptians, it reminds us of what we read today in Revelation 16, doesn't it? Verses 3 and 4. Do you remember what it said there in Revelation 16? Turn your Bibles there for one moment. 
Revelation 16. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. What the Lord God did to Egypt and Pharaoh in Exodus 7 becomes a paradigm for the judgment that all unbelievers will experience. Unbelievers will experience this same kind of judgment because of their sin. And in fact, I would say it's even going to be worse than what the Egyptians experienced. There is judgment that will come upon those who do not repent and turn to the Lord. In fact, we even see this as we continue on in Revelation 16. Here in chapter 16, John is seeing these seven bowls of God's wrath that are being poured out. And you get to verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. And what happened? They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11. What did they do? They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. All that they were seeing, all that they were experiencing, all that they were knowing as the Lord God makes himself known through his judgment did not change their hearts. They did not repent. They did not turn. They remained in their sin. They remained with their heavy and hard hearts. Are we burdened that people would come to know repentance, that God would give them the gift of repentance, that they would come to him so that they would escape these judgments, so that they would not know the judgment and wrath of God, but so that they would know the gift of life? Are these judgments real? Do they make any difference in your life? Yes, they make Abundant difference because first, you don't have to know them if you know Christ. And second, they make a difference because it means that you want to tell other people how they can escape such a judgment. I don't want anyone to know this. I don't want anyone to experience this. I want all to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to listen to God, acknowledge God, submit to God, turn to God, instead of holding on to your sin. The gift of repentance is held out to you 
today. Love what it says in the book of Acts. It says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That's what happens when we repent. This changing of mind, this turning from our sin and turning to God, our sins are blotted out. Times of refreshing come from where? From the presence of the Lord. He is with you and then he sends the Christ appointed for us to be with us, to fill our hearts, to care for us. Do you need that reminder this morning if you are a Christian that your sins have been blotted out? Do you need, do you need times of refreshing again? Let's not forget the repentance that we are called to as believers. And that's where these good truths, these truths that we need each and every day, come from. And may we not forget the judgment of our great God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us to your word today, and how you have instructed us from your word. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to study your judgment, that not only would it be real to us, we would see how it is that we have escaped your judgment if we are yours, and we also see how others can escape this judgment if they are not yours. Father, we pray that today, if there's anyone here who has not put their faith and trust in you, that today would be the day when they would repent, turn from their sin, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, believe in their hearts. He went to the cross to pay for their sin. He went to the cross to die in their place. He went to the cross to bear all of your judgment and wrath that they deserved. He went to the cross to die the death that they should have died so that they might be forgiven. Father, I pray that they would receive that forgiveness that comes from Christ, that they would believe not only that he died, but that he rose again from the dead and that eternal life, eternal glory only comes from and through him. Father, I pray that we would take seriously the judgment of wrath of God. We would not downplay it or overlook it or ignore it. But that we would see that it is who you are as a holy God. It is how you act. And that it ultimately is for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.